I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. We know the King's got a passion for the environment and for horticulture and a love of gardening. Everything in the garden, he has had a great interest in. He just comes and he blends in. We always have a laugh about, we're going to get him his wellies out and get his secateurs out. <laughs> the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III is just two days away. As a royal society, we thought it was only fitting to celebrate our new monarch with a royal-themed episode. And as it turns out, King Charles is a gardening superfan. Known for his forward-thinking, sustainable and organic approach to cultivating the earth. First up, we'll check in with three of the Prince's Foundation Estates. Highgrove, the Castle of May and Dumfries House. To get the inside scoop on how they manage their vast, jaw-dropping gardens, while still considering the environment. We'll then move ever so slightly away from the King, but still continue on with our royal theme. We're taking you to the Arundel Castle Tulip Festival to walk through their almost 130,000 glorious tulip blooms. And finally, we're not leaving you without a little homework. Leah Ruston, from the formal ornamental team at RHS Garden Wisley, will give a tutorial on how you can make your own coronation container in time for National Gardening Week. It's an episode fit for the King. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. King Charles lives by a philosophy of harmony, one that rests on the idea of creating balance between ourselves and the natural world. He's been championing sustainability for decades, and he's made this one of the main priorities of the Prince's Foundation. So today we're getting an exclusive look at the gardens in three of the Prince's Foundation's estates. Highgrove in Gloucestershire, Dumfries House in East Ayrshire, and the Castle of May, way north in Caithness. So my name is Emma Cochran-Patrick and I'm garden support. I've been at Highgrove for about 10 years. So my name's Melissa Simpson and I'm the head of gardens here at Dumfries House. My name's Chris. I've been head gardener up at Castle of May since 2018. Emma, Melissa and Chris will take us through their respective gardens, sharing details on what's currently happening on these plots and what role exactly King Charles has played in their development. Up first, Emma at Highgrove. His Majesty the King came in 1980 to Highgrove 
and it was very much a house set in a rather stark parkland, a few mature trees, and he had the vision in order to transform it to the point that it is today. So everything that you see, if you're a visitor, that you come to the garden, it's a series of interlinked rooms, and His Majesty has created that alongside his vision of sustainability as well. Well, the garden is just lovely, whatever way you start in the garden. Um, you start off in the cottage gardens and it's a lovely meandering path through the flowers. It's a very long flowering season there. And then you approach the main lawn and you have the parterres and the topiary, which is a big feature at Highgrove. Then, of course, you have the wildflower meadow, which is an enormous attraction and, of course, just teams with pollinators everywhere. And also at night time, you'll have the night flying moths as well, pollinating. Everything in the garden he has had a great interest in. And as you're aware of his ideas and sustainability, he's not only created a system where there's an irrigation system, there's a sewage reed bed system in order to deal with waste. And he's really considered the wildlife because the gardens are entirely organic. Really the whole of the landscape and gardens were laid out how the then Prince, now King Charles, set out his vision for Dumfries House. That's Melissa again. And if I don't say so myself, a lot of our visitors are just absolutely overwhelmed by the amazing things that, that we have here. Flowers, you know, woodland gardens, we've got Arboretum, we've got fantastic tree outlined avenues all over the estate. An amazing Delphinium border, which is one of the King's favourite plants, I believe. But we've also got things that we've inherited, which is a beautiful layer of ancient trees and bluebell woodlands, and then five-acre amazing walled garden, which when we first started, I think there were just a couple of living things within it, a beautiful old sycamore tree, which was planted apparently in 1599, and it's still going strong. And the rest of the place was pretty much weed seeds and Japanese knotweed. You wouldn't believe that if you visited today. It's absolutely spectacular. And last but not least, Chris from the Castle of May. I've run a two-acre wall garden. The Castle of May itself originally belongs to the Queen Mother. The main thing to do with the garden up here is he wants to keep the feel that it's still Queen Mum's garden. So it was full of roses and herbaceous and mixed with the fruit and the vegetables. But it, it'll never be a prestige garden. It's a wee bit of rambling, a wee bit quirky, but that's the way he likes it because it brings back fond memories. We are located as far north as you can in Scotland. We sit right on the shore, more or less, looking over to Old Manahoy at Orkney. Well, it's all very challenging, but Fuchsia absolutely loves it up here, <laughs> of all things. The tree-wise, the sycamore does extremely well. Unfortunately, the public always think we have great tree surgeons that come in and shape it, but that's just Mother Nature with the wind that does it for us. When you see the trees and see the way they're shaped with the way we get the wind, it's like a bit of a Harry Potter story. <laughs> but it's very, very peaceful. I call it my little heaven. It's a different way of life up here, like so. And the garden's totally different. But these gardens aren't just a slice of heaven for us humans. They welcome nature in working to provide habitats for a wide range of plants and animals. In terms of the environment, obviously we're constantly aware of that because that's something that is very close to the king's heart. And so in the garden, some of the things that we're looking to constantly 
do and improve, obviously, the encouraging more wildlife into the garden, but also looking at our composting. We've got a huge, big, I think it's two acre site of where we put all our materials and try and obviously recycle as much as we possibly can. In terms of machinery, we're reducing the amount of area that we're cutting. And so we're reducing sort of fuel consumption. In terms of our grass management, we used to do an awful lot of fertilizer application. But, you know, we're west coast of Scotland. We get a huge amount of waterfall and there's so much nitrates that fall down in the rain. We've actually stopped applying any fertilizer to our lawns. They are green. We get lots of, of water. So that's a huge, you know, in terms of the environment's saving for that. So we no longer spray them or fertilize them. So again, we're looking at every every element where we can, as you would expect us to do, to be honest. And King Charles doesn't just watch from afar. He's very hands-on when it comes to these beloved gardens. Obviously, he is going around pruning with his secateurs. He also is very involved in hedge laying as well. And in fact, in the Arboretum, he's made some hurdles and he's obviously very proficient at it because they're beautifully made. Well, the funny thing is, so last year, I didn't even realise he had arrived. <laughs> and as you can imagine, when the boss is due, there's always 101 little jobbies that you just realise you haven't done. <laughs> so I was working away. And to be honest with you, what I love about him, he's so down to earth. I turned round and he was standing there just with shades on. And I went, oh, you're here, forgetting who I'm speaking to. <laughs> And he goes, that's oh, all right, Chris, on you go, you know. He just comes and he blends in. We always have a laugh about, I'm going to get him his wellies out and get his secateurs out, like, but... <laughs> but he's always keen, always very keen in the garden, always keen to know what's going on and, and see what we're up to. So since His Majesty is clearly a keen lover of all things gardens, it makes sense to celebrate his coronation with something flora-related. We are doing something very special for the coronation and His Majesty doesn't know about it as yet. On the, in the wall garden on the side of a grassy slope, we've actually already got a cipher, the King's cipher. But what we're doing next to it is big CR, Charles Rex III. And we're doing that in, in Tadgetes, just as a big fun thing that he will see later in the year when he hopefully visits. However, not everything that's being done is out in the open just yet. We're working on a project at the moment, but I can't see any more than that at the moment, I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks there to Emma, Melissa and Chris. Some years ago, wildlife gardening, gardening with nature and even organic gardening was thought of something for people who were perhaps, well, let's say just a little eccentric. But King Charles has played his part in the fact that now wildlife gardening, gardening for nature and organic gardening are mainstream. Almost everyone is doing some aspect of these forms of gardening. Last autumn, we visited Arundel Castle, home of the Duke of Norfolk, just as they were receiving truckloads of tulip bulbs. Right now, those tens of thousands of bulbs are in full bloom throughout the gardens. And we thought, why not return to see the fruits of their labour? So here's head gardener Martin Duncan to walk us through his favourite tulip varieties and features among the staggering number of flowers. In the hopes that 
just maybe we can all draw a little inspiration from a heritage estate display. The Tulip Festival, we built it up in a small way. Well, I say a small way, only about 30,000 originally, but we've sometimes plant up to 160,000 bulbs a year. And over the last decade, we've put in over 1.3 million bulbs, which include tulips, obviously, which are a huge flower power. But then we've added Thalia triandus, white narcissus, which goes so well with the tulips, and their late flower, which is even better. So we've got the first ever labyrinth of tulips and narcissus in the world. I know, I checked on Google before doing it. But the great thing about tulips, they're sort of in 15 different groups. You've got the triumph tulips, you've got Darwin hybrid tulips, you've got the late doubles, the early doubles, the peony flowered, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And then you go on to the lily flowered tulips and then species tulips. So we've got a wider range here where we've probably got up to about 160 different named tulips on site, but it's just nice to use all of them in different ways. So the species tulips we use in the stumpery because that's what you'd find on the hillsides of Turkey. And uh, then we use the more wow factor ones in our pot displays and then the more classics along our English herbaceous borders. But in between there, the secret is we have amazing things like through the landscape, I use a golden apple dawn. I use Oxford red, but all in a classic one color with the odd punctuation of purple dream coming above them. And then the camassias come after that. And of course, underneath are all wildflowers. So you get this beautiful extension of a flowering period and you're not having to mow areas in the landscape. The apple dawns are amazing at coming back, but if you put them in the grass, what you will find, they, they will come back, but they'll digress. So you'll end up having smaller and smaller ones. Actually looking up on the hedge over there, where we put running alongside the hedge, those escape and passionale have been coming back now. That's their third year. But I think year four, we might have to top it up. Whereby, if you put the apple dawn, like apple dawn of favorite, apple dawn of beauty, straight apple dawn, which is red, or golden apple dawn, into a border, and you plant it at least four inches deep in a well-drained soil, they'll come back for 30, 40, 50 years. So it really depends. The more flouncy tulips struggle to come back as well. Let's walk to the Antlers Temple, and we'll just pick out a few of my favorite tulips and see what you think. This is a cacophony, I call it, of tulips. So you've got some amazing tulips from Blue Diamond and the Peony Angelique. We've got Moncella, which has got that streaks of red through it. We've even got a tulip called Rasta Parrot, and that's just bursting forth. And that's a crazy looking tulip. So I would say it, it comes from Stranger Things, but it has a great beauty as well. Where some of the parrot tulips, I mean, the classic is Black Parrot. That's probably my favorite, but this one, is just so extraordinary. And then we've got Sprying Break, which is like a raspberry ripple over there with sort of a creamy white streaking through it. Yoko Ono, which is the yellow over there. And one of the most beautiful tulips is La Belle Peau, which makes you think of a sort of vintage dress from the 30s or 20s, which is this one over here. As you can see, it's just, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it takes you back in time. So there's such a wide range here, you know, 
I could go on and on. <laughs> you've got the foxtrots down below and then you've got tulips coming up above. But the cacophony of colours here is lovely. And then you have the brighter ones like the Abba and the Moncella. So there's a wide range of tulips throughout. Well, when I'm choosing what goes in different areas, I sort of do a little bit of research first. So obviously this I want some colour, but subtle colour as well as vibrance. So it's quite nice to choose your tulips, but especially with pots, have early, mid and late. What you can do is you can have a tall tulip like Purple Dream floating above Purple Prince and a continuity of different ones flowering. So these are all the different Prince tulips, you know, Candy Prince, and what happens is you get a mixture and that way you, you can even put muscari with tulips as well so over there we've got a large pot you've got the blue diamond flowering now then we're going to have the mount tacoma and then the angelique will come later so you have this beautiful display for a much longer period ah oh, now we're off to the labyrinth of tulips and the tropical borders you get a view of thousands of 14,000 white thalia narcissus with about 8,000 red Oxford tulips coming and then later on there's going to be 14,000 king's blood and we're putting the king's blood in for the coronation and they are much darker tulip than the Oxford red you're seeing at the moment. And then the tropical borders are coming into flame. We've got things like Olympic flame, which is a gorgeous yellow with red tulip. And that comes back year after year. I mean, I've had them in for eight years. And then we've also got fly away, which is like a firework. And then there's Mont Orange, which is an early double. And that's a lovely, lovely tulip. I mean, tulips aren't really tropical. <laughs> they sort of more from the hillsides of uh, Turkey and places but you can always make a, a tropical border even if they're not tropical plants but they look like it. If you're planting on mass I think you you don't need any any other foliage but in these tropical borders because I'm not planting them so thickly with tulips it's wonderful to have other foliage because then it it gives it a highlight so that Persicaria red dragon with a tulip in front of it it makes it sort of shine out and look amazing. And the other thing I do in the rose garden, I use the peony flower tulip, which is angelique. And then of course people think the roses are in flower, but they're not. It just looks like a rose, but it's a peony flowered, beautiful, beautiful tulip. But you can extend your rose garden into looking beautiful because of course you can have pink impression, angelique, mondal, tulips like that, beautiful colors, and that will extend your rose season and then I also have alliums, and then the roses come into flower. There's so many tulips and they look like art pieces. I hate planting in formal ways, so I like to throw things in the air and where they land they get planted. So hopefully it looks natural. So through here, this is all, all the camassias, tulips, the narcissus, get thrown in the air, where they land, we use pogo sticks and plant them, and that's, that's where they get planted. So it looks like a more natural feel than being too orchestrated. So it's always trying things and trying different things to make a garden look beautiful. That's the whole, whole reason. But also it's very good for the environment because if you can have 
tulips through wildflowers. It looks beautiful, but then after the tulips, or after the narcissus, then the tulips, and then the camassias, you then have the wildflowers. All the insects can live and breathe and enjoy life because we're not relentlessly cutting everything. And that's how we can reintroduce, you know, beautiful populations of insects, which we desperately need to do. Well, tulips just start the, the whole season off so well. So it, it just brings a lot of joy to people. People absolutely love it. And it makes the garden look fantastic. You know, I love all plants. People always say they must be your favorite. They're certainly up there, but I love all plants. That was Martin Duncan. You can find out more about the Arundel Castle Tulip Festival using a link from our show notes. I'm a huge tulip fan. My favourite varieties include Queen of Night. It's got dark, black, well, maroon really, very deep maroon flowers, and it looks absolutely amazing. Another of my favourite tulips include the lily varieties. They've got long vase-shaped flowers. This year I planted some in my little wildlife patch, and they're coming up and looking really good. They're supposed to persist, but whether they will or not remains to be seen. Every year I choose a different kind of tulip to grow, and last year I grew the Rembrandt tulips, which have got street colours on their petals as if they're flames. And uh, they've all come back this year, somewhat to my surprise, because tulips can be tricky like that, but they're looking really good. Unfortunately, if you didn't plant tulips last year, you'll have to wait until next autumn before you can pop them in the ground. However, if Martin's tour had you itching to get planting, you're in luck. For this year's National Gardening Week, we're encouraging everyone to create their own coronation container. Leah Ruston from the formal ornamental team at Wisley is going to explain what exactly that means. So we're currently sat at the head of the Jellicoe Canal in the middle of one of our container displays. We've been changing the plants over recently, so a lot of the tulips are coming out, lots of muscari. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks we should have some quite bold colours on these steps here. So we've got Tulip uh, Spitzberg, which has got a beautiful sort of dark purple with a white inner, and then lots of little muscari bulbs. So there's Touch of Frost, which is a lovely sort of dark blue with a white tip to it, and Avalanche, which is an all-white muscari. As part of the National Gardening Week, we're encouraging people to create a container in time for the coronation, something that anyone can do, no matter sort of the size of your pot or the size of your space that you've got at home. We know the King's got a passion for the environment and for horticulture and a love of gardening, so inspiring people to create their own containers seems like a fitting way to start and celebrate the beginning of his reign. You can use anything as a container, really, is one of the beauties of it. Whether you've got a gorgeous terracotta pot, a welly boot, tin can, a watering can. Something that you do want to consider, though, if it's not designed as a container, is their drainage. If there's not holes in the bottom, then it's worth thinking about creating some, because not many plants want to be waterlogged. So that's a consideration to give. You then want to make sure that you've got a compost ready to use. Grit can also be a great addition. It can help with drainage, but also here at the garden, we like to use grits as a mulch on the top. It can completely transform the look of a plant and the container display, but it's also great as a weed suppressant. But if that gets mixed into the compost as you're creating it, that's not a problem at all. 
You then want to think about what kind of plants you're going to be using. So whether you're going to have all of one type of plant in the container or whether you're going to have a mixture. If you're going for a mixture, it's great to get some foliage plants in there as well as something that's going to create sort of beautiful blooms. There's a beautiful heuchera, Purple Palace, which would be quite fitting for the coronation. It's got a gorgeous metallic foliage. It does have pink flowers, but that's not necessarily what you'd grow it for. But you could also look at including ferns, or there's little silver senecos with silvery leaves, which can really brighten some of the pot displays as you go through. And then here in the garden, we've got the muscari, which is out in full flower. There's also opportunity to grow the pansies, the violas going through. I think also the little forget-me-nots, the mysotes. So there's some little white cultivars out there, which can be sort of beautiful little additions to it. I think as a little nod to maybe the king and his interests, I'd be quite tempted to add some thyme. I know that a high grove, they've got a thyme walk, and that's got a beautiful scent to it, beautiful flowers, but also great in a container because then you've got the culinary benefits that you can use it as well. As it starts to get a bit warmer, the succulents can start to be added to the container displays. We're just coming out of the frosts now and there's some hardy succulents out there which would survive. And then they're also great in terms of sustainability because they won't require watering. And that's great if you haven't got the time to keep checking your pots and what level of moisture. I think one of the great things about containers is that anything goes, really. If you're using more than one plant in a pot, then repetition is an important factor you don't want to have lots of one of a plant. You want to have a mixture going on there, but repetition throughout the pot. Unless you've got a big centrepiece in the statement, then that's fine to have just one plant. And then keep an eye on watering. You don't want the plant to dry out, but it's also want to make sure that you're not overwatering it, that the plant's not sitting wet. I think that's one of the important things as well, the denseness of planting. Don't be afraid to pack them in to create quite a full volume. And containers are great because then it doesn't matter what soil you've got, what space you've got, you can change it as frequently as you like. You can have annuals in there, but we've also got plants within the containers here which will stay in the containers for quite a number of years. It doesn't need to be an ever-changing item. You can have long-term pot displays. So this week as we enter the coronation, we'd like to encourage you to get out into your own space and create a beautiful container for yourself, including lots of beautiful blooms and your favourite flowers. Thanks there to Leah. When gardeners are planting to celebrate something, they're always looking for plants with an appropriate name. Unfortunately, it takes quite a long time to breed new varieties of plants. It can take 10 years to breed a new rose, for example, so there's not many plants that have been named for King Charles as yet. They will in time, but not just yet. However, there's a small number of plants that were named after the King while he was Prince of Wales. And that includes Clematis, Prince Charles, a very charming little plant that's got our award of garden merit. A spreading juniper was actually found in Alberta, Canada. It's called Juniper horizontalis, Prince of Wales. And a hosta, bred in Britain, called Hosta, Prince of Wales. Another option, which is a relatively inexpensive one, is to get seeds of a couple of plants that are named for the ostrich feathers, emblematic of the Prince of Wales. Two are commonly raised from seed, Amaranthus hypochondriacus and Celosa plumosa. Well, that's about it for today. 
Spring is slowly coming in. It's still quite cold at night and the ground is still quite wet from the large amounts of rain that we had in March and substantially more in April. But when it gets dry enough, it's time to start planting or to carry on planting and sowing. Garden centres are beginning to be full of the tender bedding plants like petunias and nicotiana. But remember, they will be liable to frost, so you'll need to cover them on nights when frost is forecast. It's also a good time to sow tender seeds, things like sunflowers and nasturtiums in the flower line, and pumpkin squash and courgettes, and perhaps ornamental gourds indoors, and they'll be ready to plant out in the first week of June, when except in the very far north, the risk of frost will be over. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening, And hopefully it'll mean we'll see lots of coronation containers created in anticipation of our new king. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.